I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Carol Hooven is the author of T, the story of testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us. From 2002 until 2023, she was a lecturer in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology and served for many years as the department's co-director of undergraduate studies. Her hormones and behavior class was named one of Harvard Crimson's top 10 tried and true courses. She is now an associate in the Harvard Department of Psychology. Carol, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm glad it's a pleasure all around. Now, my first question, understanding how passionate you've been about evolutionary biology for decades, what prompted the move to Harvard Psychology Department? What do you do now? And how are you finding it so far? I was pretty happy for a long time in evolutionary biology. I got my PhD at Harvard in 2004. And the department that I recently transitioned from, which was human evolutionary biology, that's the one that I was in. Since I basically started my PhD in 1999, that actually used to be called biological anthropology. And in 2006, it basically just changed its name. Now it's called human evolutionary biology. And that was a really good fit for me. But I should mention that I was co-advised in my dissertation by a professor named Steve Coslin, who is in the psychology department. And I was co-advised by a reproductive endocrinologist, Peter Ellison, in what used to be biological anthropology, but is now human evolutionary biology. So my old office when I was a grad student was actually in psychology and my lab was in psychology. So I'm very comfortable in the psychology department. So that's where I am now. But the reason that that is where I am is because my circumstances changed pretty dramatically in the human evolutionary biology department after my book on testosterone and sex differences, basically from an evolutionary point of view, after that was published in 2021. And they changed for the worse. And it became untenable, I would say, for me to stay in the department. And so luckily, Steven Pinker, who is a professor in the psychology department, rescued me and gave me a place still at Harvard. I'm not teaching, unfortunately, anymore. I hope to be able to teach again. But I'm able to interact with people who share my interests to some degree. And I'm starting on another book. And I have some support there in that lab with people who are also doing psychology from an evolutionary point of view, and also some really interesting graduate students and others who I share interests with. On that note, Carol, I'd like to read two quotes from your book that I think are important to help frame the why of your book and the why of this interview. So the first one from the book is, quote, when we have a strong emotional or physical response to a stimulus, whether an anthropod, a person, an inanimate object, or a scientific hypothesis, we often irrationally project our response onto the stimulus itself. This can lead us to make poor decisions based on gut feelings rather than reasonable ones based on the proper evaluation of evidence. We can be driven to avoid accepting unpalatable conclusions, end quote. And this is the second passage, which is near the end of the book. You write, quote, Science, of course, is not the only way to understand ourselves. Books, music, the visual arts, poetry, travel, other people, and ideas that take us out of our comfort zones, these are all ways for us to learn about humanity. 
But science in particular, including a basic knowledge of statistics, hypothesis testing, biology, logical reasoning, can equip us with the tools we need to intelligently process the enormous amount of information with which we are confronted every day. When good causes are mixed up with bad science, or when propaganda and conspiracy theories have more sway than good data, something has gone badly wrong, end quote. So, bit of a softball, Carol, but why do you think I chose to quote these passages at the start of this conversation, and why was it so important for you, chapter after chapter, to remind the reader that scientific data is neither judgment nor destiny? Well, I think you're very clever, and that is why you decided to quote those particular passages. I think that's a really interesting way to begin, and it caused me to get lost in thought about the implications of those words in ways that I really hadn't thought about before. And one of the implications is that I think the reaction to some of my views on the science are exactly what I was warning against in my book. And I hadn't really thought of it that way before. And the reason I thought that it was so important to keep reminding the reader about the way I think about it is there's the truth of reality on the one hand, and I'm trying to discover and communicate it. And that is what I have always been interested in doing. That's what drives me. That's what causes me to lose track of time when I have a question about how something works, because it's part of my job, I get to try to discover it. And then the other awesome part is I used to get to interact with students and turn them on to how cool and powerful science is in discovering how the world works. The mistake that a lot of people make is to take certain facts about the world to imply ethical or moral outcomes or conclusions. and. One of the interesting things about being human is that we can reflect deeply as individuals, as societies, and through, you know, religions and cultural norms, et cetera. We can decide what the implications of reality should be, you know, to the extent that we can understand reality. So I think you read those quotes because you probably understand that I. I'm simply trying to understand and communicate how things work in the natural world. And I've been accused, based on my views about the natural world, I've been accused of holding some really damaging and bigoted views that I do not hold. And so I think you were generously trying to alert the audience to that. We'll circle back to some of your peers' perspectives on your work in a little bit. But You've said in another podcast, quote, understanding testosterone helps me understand the world, end quote. And I love this quote because it's such a distinct declaration. You know, it really plants a flag in the ground. Understanding testosterone helps you understand the world. So as a primer for our audience heading into our conversation, why? Because our world and not just the fellow human beings that we share it with, all of the life on earth, but most profoundly sort of the life that we can just witness all around us in terms of other mammals like 
birds, you know, I am a huge bird watcher and there are really big differences between the males and females. And if you're a bird, they're super important and you have got to know who is male and who is female. And those divisions are profound. So if you're into birds, just start thinking about birds and how they look and how they behave. We can see them every day. That's part of why I think they're so cool. We can see the different behaviors of the sexes in ways that have to do with parenting and aggression and really shape the social world of birds. So then we can turn to look at humans and our social worlds. And that includes our romantic relationships, our sexual relationships, our aggressive relationships, war, status competitions. And that includes men and women and boys and girls and our political system, our political values. You know, I could go on and on our institutions and how they operate. Sex is one of the most profoundly influential ways that our social structures are shaped. And I think that there has been a lot of denial of the importance of sex in shaping our lives. And one way to show that the people who are denying that sex is real or influential I'm not sure how they can deny, well, they are doing it, but they're trying to also then deny this perspective of looking at genes and hormones in humans and non-human animals and exactly what testosterone just as basically the main difference between males and females and the way that testosterone shapes bodies and behavior in ways that have a lot of continuity with non-human animals, I think is very clear. And while we have genetic differences, it's really the most important product of those genetic differences. As far as we know, I think the, some of the genes that differ, say, on the Y chromosome in mammals are really important. Also, we don't understand as much about how purely sort of pre-hormonal genetic differences matter, but we know that the most profound differences are due to hormonal differences, starting with testosterone exposure, you know, just a few weeks after conception that have permanent effects on brain development and function and the body, which of course shapes social interactions in really profound ways, which shape culture. And we have gendered culture everywhere in the world. We have something like sex roles that are, you know, hugely important. That's why I focus on testosterone and until someone can convince me that there is one sort of single factor that is more important than testosterone in shaping, you know, these divergent bodies and behaviors of the sexes, which obviously I don't know how people can deny that sex, and I don't mean the act, but of course having males and females facilitates the act, at least for heterosexual people, I don't see the evidence that there's anything more influential than not just that hormone, but also the fact that females do not have it and have high, I mean, they have a small amount, sorry, and they have high estrogen instead. You know, ever since I was a little kid, one of my favorite birthday presents that my parents would get me every year was they would get me like books on facts, like the way that the Middle Ages worked and like the architecture of castles and the weapons and armor that knights would use or fun little fact books about like, do penguins have knees or why is Christmas celebrated on December 25th or how was the toilet invented? 
And one of the things that I love so much about this podcast is that whether I'm talking with an expert in the mistreatment of imprisoned people in prisons or the causes of and solutions for poverty in the United States or the problems with and solutions for policing or how rockets work, like one of my favorite things about life and about this show specifically, selfishly, is that I get to learn more about how the world works. And of course, there are going to be people on any side of any issue that will disagree about the best way to do something or what the research may or may not say. Just as a more benign example, I had a gentleman by the name of Andy Lapsa. He's the CEO of Stoke Space. They're making reusable rockets. And they're one of maybe a dozen companies attempting to achieve that goal of making totally reusable rockets that are able to quickly turn around and launch again and again without having to dump themselves into the sea after every launch, which is what historically we've done with rockets until about you know five minutes ago. And there's a lot of contention within that space about what the best way to build a reusable rocket is, but it's understanding that everyone is trying to solve for the same problem. So for me, just as a layman looking in to your world, I am fascinated by your hypothesis in the same way that I'm fascinated by the hypotheses of other people who disagree with you. And I don't want to belabor this point too long because your book really is fascinating and I would prefer to just talk about the findings of your book. But I do just want to say that I yearn for a world in which we look at your perspectives and your peers' perspectives on this topic the same way we would look at what Andy and his team are doing for reusable rockets and what his competitors are doing in that they're all attempting to achieve the same goal. They're coming at it from different angles and none of them wish each other ill will. That's just my little aside. I find facts and information fascinating. I lament that your field is embroiled in... Um, controversy. Yes, controversy is a good way to put it. So anyway, that's my piece. But speaking of this topic, right, about boys, about men, about human beings in general, I spoke with Richard Reeves recently. I know you appeared on his podcast. The two of you have spoken. He's the author of the book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. I spoke with him earlier this year. And the dedication of his book read for George, Bryce, and Cameron. Those are his three sons. Richard's book, for our listeners who haven't listened to that episode, was a deep dive into how boys and men were failing and are failing in society and how society in many ways is failing them. And that dedication pointed to the fact that his motivation to write the book was fundamentally grounded in the personal. I mean, for anyone who's not familiar with Richard, he's an academic who's dedicated his life to solving for social inequality. But he's also, importantly, the father to three boys. So the stakes for him are personal. And in your book's dedication, it reads, for Griffin, your son was 11 years old at the time of the book's publication in 2021. I imagine he might be 13 now. He's 14, yeah. He's 14. Oh, they grow up so fast, huh? I know. What does the dedication in your book say about your motivations for writing it? And how did the process of writing and researching help you better understand your son? I just want to say that Richard had a big impact on me and my thinking. And during our conversation, which was sort of early on in my podcast journey, we talked about the importance of culture and how culture holds all of the keys. You know, he's focused on culture. He's focused on what is going on right now and how we can explain it. For boys and men, he has a chapter on 
the biology of sex differences, something like that. But really, he's focused on describing and trying to do what he can to encourage something like a positive masculinity as part of the cultural message. And I think that's such an important point about culture. So culture is not separate from biology. You know, it reflects biology, culture, and our genes and hormones are all interacting all the time in this very deep way. So whatever problems we face, the answer is not in, you know, doing anything to our bodies or doing anything to our genes. And some people take what I have been saying, no matter how many different ways I try to talk about the importance of culture, or at least people misunderstand the implications of a strong biological contribution to a behavior or a sex difference or a group difference in some kind of behavior. Like I focus a lot on physical aggression. And just because testosterone in my view, increases the propensity for physical aggression in males on a population level. And that's how we can help to explain these patterns that by no means indicates that there's anything hopeless about the situation, that high rates of male violence are inevitable. We already have the evidence, and Richard has done a great job in showing this. We already have the evidence that different kinds of cultural norms can really make a huge impact on shaping the behaviors, like upregulating the expression of behaviors that we find socially desirable and using culture to support positive aspects of masculinity and also to reduce the, I don't want to say aspect of masculinity in terms of aggression, because I think that extreme violence is manifested in a relatively small group of people. It just happens that group of people is overwhelmingly male. So that doesn't mean that the average male is highly violent. What it means is that of those who are highly violent, they're mostly male. I just wanted to give a big shout out to Richard. He's doing really important work. A lot of people did not want him to write that book, as you know, and and feel that this focus on masculinity is misplaced and that men sort of deserve whatever they're getting. <laughs> the focus should be on other groups, I think. But that is not what you asked me. No, that's okay. Okay. You asked about the dedication and what did I learn? And I do want to say just real quick, Carol, I want to yes and you when it comes to the importance of culture and the significance of it, look to history, right? I mean, <laughs> I can look to my own ancestors, both in, in Ireland and Armenia, and I'm sure all of us can look to our ancestors in their respective places a hundred, a thousand years ago and see how much more violent those societies were, how much more war-torn, bloodthirsty. I mean, if anyone's read The Conquests of Genghis Khan, does anyone really think that genetically the people of Mongolia have changed so much that they have just, you know, evolved out of their quote-unquote bloodthirsty ways? No, the conquerors of all countries of the past. And present, I have to say, and present. Of course. And we still have tremendous cultural diversity today. And yes, you look at the different laws in different countries, even neighboring countries, and you have vastly different rates of violence. But which is all to say, whether you're comparing the same country to itself from 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago to now, or different countries in the present, I think the key is that 
it's the culture and the cultural norms that have affected the rates of violence within those countries, either comparing to past to present or present to present. And so, yeah, I just want to yes and you that, yes, while genes do tell us something, which and I find it quite fascinating what it does and doesn't tell us, the importance of culture and how we react to and monitor violence is so important. Yes, yes. But anyway, yes, the dedication of your book, your son, Griffin. The reason I wrote the book is because this is a topic I've always been interested in. This is what my dissertation research was on. I've been focusing pretty heavily on sex differences and sexual differentiation, any but anything to do with endocrinology. So that's just what I've always been interested in. And then I felt that field was being, I guess, trampled on in a way, and I wanted to defend it and explain how I think things work. The other piece is that I have three older brothers. I'm the youngest. So there was a lot of testosterone in the house. But it was my brothers are not, you know, they're all very different from each other. Like anyone who has men in their lives knows that they're, you know, it's not a monoculture. And men come in all different sizes and shapes and personalities. And my son is not an athletic kid. He is really into chess right now. He's had a lot of friends of both sexes. He's very creative. And he definitely got the message. And this is in Cambridge, Mass, right? So this is a super progressive part of the world. Even more so in this super progressive part of the world, he was getting the message from all kinds of sources. But I'll never forget one day when we went into one of the local bookstores, there were all these books on display about girl power which is great. I love that message that girls can be strong and tough and into sports and climbing rocks and trees, you know, all those kind of things that I did <laughs> when I was little. I was a little tomboy. But Griffin was looking through these books and he just said, Mom, why aren't there any for me? And this is when he was little. And I realized that all of the messages for kids were about celebrate. I mean, it seemed like were about celebrating girls and girl power, and that there were some messages that he then started to hear more of as he started to tune into the news and read the news. You know, he looks at the newspaper and he hears our discussions and hears messages at school that femininity is somehow morally superior to masculinity. And this is a negative message about masculinity. And that made me very sad and I wrote about this a little bit in the book, I wanted him to feel just as proud of his burgeoning, you know, he was 11, so he hadn't yet entered puberty, wanted him to anticipate that with excitement and pride and a feeling of how cool it was going to be to be a man, you know, that women, when they mature, it's celebrated, generally. In other cultures, masculinity is also celebrated. But there's different kinds of cultural norms in different parts of the world that kind of, I think, recognize the potentially problematic aspects of masculinity if boys and men are not supported in being boys and men and in the ways that they are different from girls and women. So that's part of why I dedicated it to him. I wrote it through COVID and Griffin was home for part of that. And he put up with a lot of mom not being available and incessant talk about the book. So that's also why I dedicated it to him. But really, as a, a boy who was becoming a man and having his testosterone rise and trying to understand 
what that experience is. And I want him to feel that it's a beautiful, amazing transition because it is. And what we need to do, in my view, and this is what my next book is going to be more focused on, is what is that transition about? What is going on? Why does it happen? And, you know, I want to argue that we have to really understand and recognize and be explicit about what boys and men are feeling. And it cannot be with shame. The shame associated with the natural drives essentially, that kind of differentiate human males from females. And I don't mean that they're completely different. I mean that on average, there is a vast gulf between the sexes, for one thing, in terms of sex drive. And I think that should not be stigmatized. It does have to be socially dealt with. (laughs) And boys need to feel that this is perfectly fine to have these feelings But what do we do about how do we handle these feelings in a social, cultural environment? Any shaming is just going to cause, I think, boys and men to kind of go underground. It literally is what's happening and they're, you know, more likely to stay in their mom's basement and maybe watch videos or porn or, and there's, you know, lower rates of engagement out in the real world. That is one of the main points I think that has for me come out of all of the gazillions of conversations I've had about the book, mostly with men, because it's mostly men that are doing podcasts, really, which is interesting in and of itself. But this is what I've heard over and over. And also based on the feedback that I've gotten from Joe Blow out in the world, from emails, etc, saying, thank you for seeing me. Thank you for not shaming me for being who I am. Please tell my story, you know, or tell the story of what it's like. Reeves has rightly said, in my view, that building boys up does not require tearing women down and building girls and women up does not require tearing men down. It is not a win-lose us versus them scenario. We can make a better world for everybody. In my conversation with an advocacy group for prisoners who were being callously and brutally mistreated while imprisoned, we talked a bit about John Rawls' theory of the original position, or what is otherwise known as the veil of ignorance. Mm -hmm. Basically, for our listeners, what that theory says is it creates a hypothetical scenario in which if you were fully conscious before you were to be born, and birth is signified by walking through the veil, There is a veil in front of you, and when you walk through it, when you pass through that veil, you will pass into society, you will be born into society. Before you pass through the veil, you have the option of creating basically the systems of justice and equality, and you can decide who's going to be on top and who's going to be on the bottom, et cetera, et cetera, right? And before you know when you're born who you will be, a man or a woman, black, white, slave, master, you know, whatever it is in this hypothetical society, How would you construct that society before you know what your place within it would be, right? And I find this an incredibly powerful hypothesis, an incredibly powerful philosophical exercise, because it shows that if we don't know where we're going to end up, our impulse to construct society in the most just fashion will increase. If we know, for instance, that we're going to be born into wealth, well, maybe we would want to privilege the position of the wealthy at the expense of the impoverished, right? But if we know that we're going to be born into poverty, maybe we will be more for social welfare and lifting up those who are in poverty. 
because we know that's who we'll be. And so whether I'm looking at something like the Dahl test from the 1950s, which was key in the Brown versus Board of Education ruling that desegregated schools, or when I hear the stories of my mother or, excuse me, my mother or her siblings or my grandmother and the age in which they grew up and the discrimination they had to face as women in a much more regressive time, or I hear the story of your son Griffin, I see a through line, which is that judging people and punishing them, whether they're part of a historically marginalized group or a historically advantaged one, I always come back to the individual. And while Griffin or myself or other boys and men living today are technically part of a larger group that has existed and been privileged throughout time, your son Griffin, in the same way that some of my nephews and other young boys today, have nothing to do with those men who were long dead, who created structures that benefited them at the cost of other people. In the same way that it's important when looking at research like yours and appreciating that group differences on the average say nothing about individuals, in the same way that my father had four brothers, one who which was a, a very masculine gay man who loves carpentry, and my own father, who was the most sensitive of the bunch in a family of cops and veterans, my dad was an English major who gave me my passion for reading, and we have long philosophical discussions about time travel, and he's fast to cry, just like I am right now. The speaking about averages says nothing about individuals, and in that same regard, it pains me in any respect when we punish an individual for what we think about groups or what quote-unquote groups have or haven't done. And so anyway, that's just something I had to get off my chest when hearing about your son at that bookstore. I just want to comment that hearing you talk like that reminds me of something I've said definitely to people in person. And I, I think on at least a couple of podcasts that, well, first of all, I'm not sure if people are as acutely aware as I am of all of the writings and speeches that there are, I hate to say, but from a certain strain of feminism, which justifies the actual hating of men, hatred of men, and is very anti-men. That is a strain of feminism that does not represent the entire movement. Of course, there's many different forms, but there is this, I think, idea that women are justified to some degree in holding men accountable, holding all men accountable for the fact that women are not safe and don't say feel safe, because, you know, that's a fact that it's hard for men to understand what that is like. But what you just said is something that I really feel, which is it's easy to judge. It's easy to judge from where, say, I stand. I can judge men maybe for even for their feelings, but maybe if a man's eyes linger too long on a woman's body part. And I notice that and I can think, what an a-hole, you know, and I can be very judgmental about that. But I could have been born male. I could have been raised male in this society. Any of us women could have as easily, of course, been born a man. And would we be exempt from all of that or immune from all of those cultural and biological influences that would lead us to be more likely to want to linger on certain body parts. I'm not saying it's right to do that, of course. It's very easy to judge the feelings and behaviors that we find difficult sometimes, say, to be on the receiving end of. 
What's harder is to put ourselves in the position biologically and culturally of men to know that most men are working to restrain themselves, actually. This is something that I have really come to appreciate, especially from talking to a lot of men about testosterone and about their feelings. And there's a lot of guilt that they're not behaving appropriately, even when they're really trying. Again, this is not to excuse anything, but it's to just try to understand because we must understand each other if we are going to improve the conditions for both sexes. And I think everyone should remember they could have been born in anyone else's shoes, and it's easy to judge from the shoes that you are walking in. Yes. As I said, the original position, the veil of ignorance, it is like a nuclear bomb of empathy once you understand it. And I should note that I have enormous wells of empathy for women, people who have traditionally been marginalized for their sexuality, for their gender expression, for their immutable characteristics. And I understand, even if I disagree in a position of morality, I deeply understand how someone in that position could eventually feel hatred towards the group at large if they have a series of experiences with members of that group repeatedly that make them feel less than, as I'm sure you do as well. So I want to note that. Yes. But to your point, I've mentioned on this podcast before, I grew up Christian. I used to really, truly believe in God. I went to church regularly. I lost my faith in my early 20s, and I'm agnostic now. But when I was a teen, and this isn't easy to admit, but I'll divulge it here for the sake of this example. In my very first relationship, I was dating a wonderful girl who was great, but she wanted to move faster, you know, sexually, let's say, (laughs) than I did, in that I did not want to at all. I was saving myself for marriage at the time. And I was so conflicted that I ended up praying about it to Jesus. And I ended up breaking up with her because I felt that she was, you know, quote unquote, leading me astray, right? Now, the reason that I mention that is that if you can imagine this young boy, you know, I was 16 at the time, but I remember starting to feel these things around 13, 14 years old, when the hormones were, and I imagine specifically testosterone, was surging through my body. I want our audience to just understand this. I was trying my hardest every day to be a good Christian boy, to be faithful to the morality in which I'd been raised, to be faithful to what I'd read in the Bible. But I would catch myself, like literally my eyes darting to parts of, you know, of the female anatomy in my classmates at 14, 15, 16 years old in ways where I literally, my reaction time wasn't fast enough to not do it. And I would feel so much shame so much shame that my body and brain were doing things that I knew I didn't want to do because they went counter to my faith. And so I'm just sharing that story about, you know, which I regret very much now as as a non-believer, but I'm sharing that story about why I broke up with my first girlfriend to hammer home the point that the physical reactions that were happening within my body that were making my eyes look at certain girls in certain ways that I never had before puberty to show that a lot of the stuff that happens within boys and men, and this does not excuse bad behavior, but it is truly, from my experience, involuntary. But that isn't to say, I mean, I was fully in control of how I reacted to that stimulus, and I would, again, feel shame for it. But that split second before I had a chance, when my lizard brain was acting, before my higher consciousness could counteract it, that was out of my control. 
Thank you for describing that. That's such a clear illustration. And it sounds bizarre for you to say that there's some force in you. It doesn't feel like you. It feels like there's something in you that is pushing you and directing you. And of course, there is. It's not just the hormones, but you know, you have a consciousness and you have your religious values. Then you have these urges that are so, so strong. And I just have a little anecdote, which is I have a good friend and he had prostate cancer and he's in his early 70s. And he, as part of the treatment, had to have his testosterone blocked because it is aggravated by androgens. So that's part of the normal treatment for prostate cancer. And he described what you can read about in the literature, but it just is, I think, a great illustration. He's a 73-year-old man, you know, he's fit and otherwise healthy. He said it was a complete change. And for the first time in his adult life, he did not have the need to inhibit, which he described to me. Now he could see very clearly that he was constantly inhibiting his desire for younger, mostly younger women, and that he could now see that was exhausting. Because once it was gone, when he blocked his testosterone, he said within a few days, it was a tremendous relief. And this is another thing I don't think women understand. This person is a very good man. He's not some lecherous old guy. He's just a really good human being. And this is also something that trans women, so males who transition to living in a female sex role, experience and report having experienced when they block their testosterone and take estrogen if they're hormonally transitioning. They say the same, many of them, you know, again, there's a huge amount of variety in the experience, but it's a sense of relief from this intense drive that you don't really get perspective on it until it's gone. And I just find that fascinating, very powerful evidence and that, you know, you get the opposite happening in females who've been living as women who then take male levels of testosterone and then enter a whole new universe of sexual desire. And I have had many of them describe to me how overwhelming that feels, but it feels right to them because they feel masculine. They want to live in a male sex role. And until you go through that, I don't think we're going to understand each other. <laughs> so <laughs> until we, yeah, really sort of hormonally live in the other sex's shoes. This is delicate to say. My aim is to say this with empathy, but in, in a way, both men and women are in some respects dominated by and prisoners to testosterone. Yes. In what you're saying. Yes. Because in the same way that women have, you know, historically and still presently are the victims of, and to go to the example you used of the trans man, I remember you shared this anecdote in another podcast about how after they'd been taking testosterone, they all of a sudden, you know, they'd been viewing and relating with women their entire lives because they'd been attracted to women their entire lives, but how they viewed women so fundamentally differently. I think in your words, basically more as objects once the testosterone was flowing through them. And in that way, you know, in the same way that I was made partially because of my religious upbringing, which was causing that shame, but I was made to feel like there was this thing that was beyond my control that was hurting me, 
that was making me do things and making me think things that I consciously didn't want to do or think. And so in that way, and I just want to say, and this is not meant to excuse or alleviate the women who are on the receiving end of this, but I do want to just be additive and say that in that same way to your anecdotes, that men in their own ways, good men are also (laughs) victims of, to maybe not use too harsh a word there, that same chemical, that same hormone. Yes. And and that's an interesting way of thinking about it. I think you acknowledged if you use the word victim, then that's going to be something like triggering for, for yes. people who have been victimized. Perhaps too strong a word. Well, no, but I, I don't I don't think it is because there are a lot of men who have talked about puberty as feeling like a sense of being out of control and overwhelmed. It warps your relationships with the friends that you had. Like when I was a child and I was like 9, 10, 11 years old, like I would have quote unquote crushes on my female friends, but they were like completely benign. Right. And to then go through that period, and you're extremely familiar with this phenomenon now, but to just then go through that period where it feels like a switch is literally flipped and you see the same people who you were just hanging out with yesterday in a completely new light, in a way that you didn't ask for, is a very strange experience. And it can be. So I think you had Andrew Sullivan on, and in my conversation with him, that was also really enlightening, because as a gay man, even though his family, I think, was not always super supportive of his homosexuality, he felt that this is fantastic. Like, he did not have shame about his sexuality, And that could have something to do with the fact that he is gay and that other men who wanted to interact with him sexually wanted the same thing. So there wasn't the same kind of sense of shame within that sexual culture in the way that there can be in heterosexual relationships. So I thought that was interesting. But the one thing I just wanted to clarify is that the trans men, so Again, people who are female and then take testosterone to transition to living as male. So there's evidence in the literature about changes to sexuality and a dramatic increase in libido. But most of this idea of increasing objectification is anecdotal. But I heard it over and over again from the trans men I spoke with. And it's not that objectification replaces being attracted to the full human being and having meaningful loving relationships. It's that this it's an additional and new component, which is very powerful. And that there is a quality of being obsessed with body parts, where it's as though the human being is standing in the way of one's accessing those body parts, which is new. So that seems to be the new piece, but the other part is falling in love with a whole human being is retained, but it's not always the primary goal. You know, there's this other layer, I think, that's new, and that can be very distracting and disturbing to a female who lived as a woman resenting beyond the receiving end of that. Yes. No, I I totally agree. And that's a really good way to put it. It's an added presence. It doesn't replace it's not like I only saw women as or girls at that point as two-dimensional beings all of a sudden. <laughs> right. But it was, it was literally like, you know what it was? Maybe this is a good metaphor. It's like if your thoughts and feelings in your body are instruments in an orchestra, you know, and like you can hear the violin and you can hear the piano and you can hear the cymbal. And then all of a sudden, 
right around 13, the most loud trumpet just starts blaring. Because especially at, again, not to belabor this too much, I'm 40 now, and that trumpet is a lot softer. And it's easier, much easier to put it to the side. But when you are like 14, 15 years old, I mean, it is like, like all the instruments are still there. But I mean, holy mother of God. But you're saying, sorry, you're saying it's easier to put it to the side now and it's softer. Yeah. But I would guess that relative to a same age or even younger woman, it's still incredibly loud. (laughs) That's what I'm interested in is what is the source of that? Yes, it's going to get softer for you over time. But the fact that a 70 something year old man is saying once his testosterone was gone, that everything changed so dramatically, you know, that's still a pretty loud trumpet. (laughs) Yes, that's true. I, I, you know, I guess I take for granted the fact that I've been living with the trumpet for so long. That's right. That's right. You know what it's like? You don't know if your house smells. You invite a guest over, they come in, they're like, what? Is this smell musty in here? You're like, I don't smell anything. It's like, well, you've been living in that house your whole life. Wait, you just clarified why when we come home from vacation, I'm like, what is that smell? Yeah. And I think something's happened when we're gone. No, it's just that your nose is recalibrated. Yeah. You know, you've said in a past podcast, I can't recall which one, but you said that if you knew the testosterone levels of everyone in your former class at Harvard, you wouldn't be able to make claims about their behavior based on their levels of testosterone alone. Yes. And that in some ways, to kind of just jump head first in here, it feels like it almost runs counter to the thesis of the book at face value, which is that testosterone plays a big role in how we do or don't behave. And you expand on this apparent contradiction in the book at length. The science of testosterone is definitely more complex than more testosterone equals bigger, stronger man. But it's also an incredibly powerful critical hormone in determining sex differences. So can you help our audience kind of square that circle? You know, like testosterone is not a predictor of violence or aggression in an individual. but Or libido. Or libido. But the presence of testosterone in the body does increase one's likelihood of those things. Yes. So uh, there's a couple different ways to go at this. First, I want to say that the lack of a strong association, there are some associations between one's sort of what we call baseline testosterone level and some outcomes. But when we see them in the literature, they tend to be weak. And this is not unique to humans. There are relationships between individual differences in testosterone level and a lot of different kinds of behaviors are not always strong also in non-human animals. I also want to say that the lack of this association and the lack of, say, a clear association between testosterone level and sports performance within men, again, there are some associations in some sports, but generally there is not some sort of linear relationship there. This is a fact that people who oppose biological explanations for sex differences, this is a lot of feminist scholars who are in this area. They use this fact as ostensible evidence that testosterone is not important and doesn't explain sex differences, but that is a sleight of hand. It is totally the lack of a kind of dose response relationship within men between, say, testosterone and libido or aggression is totally compatible with testosterone being extremely important in explaining higher libido in men compared to women or higher rates of aggression in men compared to women. 
And one thing that people tend to not appreciate is how important the sex difference in testosterone level in utero is. That is where across many non-human animals, especially in mammals, where we have the evidence, where we can do these experiments, we know that significantly higher testosterone levels in male fetuses and in depending on the species, including humans, shortly after birth, testosterone also can go up. There are permanent effects on brain development that underpin sexually differentiated behaviors in adulthood, including aggressive behavior and sexual behavior. And those can last if the animal has behavioral and social experience with sex and or aggression, those sex differences can last because testosterone can permanently change the brain in these critical periods, which are during gestation and during puberty in ways that if you remove the testosterone in adulthood, there are residual long-term effects that you know will never go away. So that's one thing is that there are these long-term effects that do not depend on the amount of testosterone that one has right now. So the changes that testosterone and estrogen during puberty, those changes in say neural circuitry change the way that animals interact with their environment and are motivated and rewarded for different kinds of behaviors. So different kinds of stimuli that we encounter in our environment, like if I see a baby on the street, cute little baby, a lot of women will notice the baby, especially if they're in their reproductive years, and men would be less likely to have that environmental stimulus provoke a response. That seems to be because of something social conditioning, you know, may play a role there, but also the neural circuitry has conditioned males to be more aware of certain stimuli than others. Like they may be more attuned reproductively because it's reproductively beneficial to fertile looking females in their environment or males who may be competitors for those fertile looking females. And that's not dependent on how much testosterone a person has right now. So it's not surprising to people in this field that relationship doesn't exist. And it's consistent with what we see in other animals, and it makes evolutionary sense. What does seem to be really important is how testosterone levels respond within individuals to social interactions, especially those that have to do with behaviors or social situations that are relevant to status, because male status is in some sense evolutionarily relevant because the higher status a male has or has had over human evolutionary history, the better access to resources he has, and then he would be more likely to be able to attain and fertilize mates relative to a male who had lower status on average. So competition, sexual signals are going to be more relevant for males potentially than females and higher testosterone. I mean, like five to 30 times more during the critical periods than females. That's a huge difference. It's not a, a difference sort of within men. It's that women do not even approach the lower end of the male range, the typical healthy male testosterone range. It's just an enormous gulf. And that's what makes the difference between the sexes. It's just not so meaningful 
within sex, but what does appear to be meaningful is how testosterone responds to social interactions in ways that shape future behavior in similar social environments in individual males. So like, does your testosterone go up when you're competing? And then if you won or lost a particular competition, like a football game or a chess game, maybe there was some testosterone change there that is temporary that can reinforce certain kinds of adaptive behaviors in different social circumstances. I want to tie this back to your son, Griffin, because you talk about him at the end of the book. And you say in the book, quote, when Griffin was little, I was curious about why he didn't want to play with trucks and blocks like lots of other boys. He could play with girls' toys or boys' toys. It was all the same to my husband and me. Actually, for his first few years in school here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, he was positively rewarded for playing in gender atypical ways. But he still wanted to pounce on his friends and draw comic after comic about bad guys blowing things up with the good guys coming to the rescue. Research on play preferences helped me to learn what was typical, but also informed the way we responded to his choices. We tried to be as open and supportive as possible, knowing that even if we wanted to, we weren't going to be able to shape what kind of man he would grow into, end quote. I really connected with this passage for a multitude of reasons, but I've been really into stoicism lately, and I've found it very helpful for the same reasons that I've found cognitive behavioral therapy helpful for me. Because one of the things that binds cognitive behavioral therapy and stoicism together is the belief, the mantra that there are things that happen to us in life that are out of our control. But the thing that is within our control is how we react to those things when they happen to us. That's one of the reasons why I found that passage so powerful. And I think it's something that's important for people to understand your research and this book. There are many things within us due to evolution and biology that are outside of our control. They're happening internally. They're processes that we don't have personal control over. But we do have a lot of agency and control in how we react to it. In the same way that you can be the best mother you could possibly be to your son, Griffin, we can react to how testosterone is affecting us and our world and adapt to it in ways that are healthier than perhaps we've used and reacted to in history. And I just wanted to call that out because I think it's a really fundamental aspect of your book. Yeah, you're just taking me down memory lane here. And I think part of why I was so attuned to Griffin's, I guess, lack of yeah, it was fascinating because, like you mentioned, he really loved rough and tumble play and did draw these crazy comics about outer space and things blowing up. But I played baseball, so I tried to get him to play baseball because I wanted an athletic son so I could play with him. I wanted to go out and throw the ball around with him. I wanted to like climb trees and yeah, well, actually, he loves climbing. Sorry, he climbed a lot of trees. But he wasn't, yeah, the kind of boyish boy that I thought I could engage in boyish activities with. And I had to let him unfurl, right? And that's what we learn as parents, of course. And I just, I'll mention that he wore a dress for a while when he was in second grade. And it was interesting because in Cambridge, and he went to a school where that was positively celebrated, he actually had people clapping, I'm not kidding, when we walked to school. For me, being such a great mom and supporting my kid who's wearing a dress, which I, for me, that was not 
cool. I just wanted him to wear a clean dress. He can do whatever he wants, but he has to have a nice dress. <laughs> to me, that's just, he can be who he is and I don't want any kind of reinforcement for any particular way of being if he's being a good kid and wearing <laughs> clean clothes. You have certain expectations based on the sex of your kid that's hard to avoid. And I do think after really being immersed in all of the literature, you cannot change these qualities in your kid. Your kid is who he or she is, and they're not going to be more masculine or more feminine because of certain types of toys you try to give them. I heard this over and over, especially from kids who grew up to be gay, who were gender atypical as kids. It doesn't matter what their parents do in terms of trying to train them to have the you know socially appropriate typical gender role behavior. They can fake it for a while, but that makes kids miserable. They're going to be who they're going to be. And that to me is the power of biology. People are not born blank slates. They do come into the world with a set of predispositions. My you know, son, I think was more of a physically fearful kid than I was. And I wanted him to be more like me. And he's not. He's Griffin. Like... Sorry, I'm getting all emotional. And he's a great kid. And I felt guilty for not just letting him be exactly who he wants to be. We live in an increasingly polarized time. And the topic of sex and gender has become an especially acrimonious battlefield in a discourse, I think, that is increasingly defined by catastrophic rhetoric. And your book, Carol, is so nuanced, so empathetic, and so rock solid in its scientific grounding. And there are so many wonderfully fascinating passages, like the story of you catching chimpanzee urine in the forest of Western Uganda, <laughs> that I can't do anything but recommend it to everyone who has listened to our discussion today, which again, only scratched the tiniest bit of a large surface of this book, who wants to learn more about a topic that should not be contentious, should not be controversial, and importantly, should be exciting and fun and interesting and wondrous. You know, this is just my soapbox here, but I yearn for a future in which everyone approaches topics like these with your care, your candor, passion, and most importantly of all, empathy. So thank you for writing this book, a book very much of the moment and one that is needed. And thank you, Carol, for your time. Michael, thank you so much. This was such a great conversation and I really appreciate your approach and all your wonderful questions and comments. This was great. Thank you. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts.